Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 14th episode of Something in the Crumb. I am Unsung Kim, and I'm Kim Wen. And today we have another special guest. Um, it's very exciting. So exciting. My favorite person in the world, also my brother. Joseph Kim is joining us from Korea. Woo! Yay! Joe, <laughs> Joe is a writer, a photographer, a journalist. He currently works for Reuters, um, covering the um, covering East Asian politics, but also um, North and South Korea in particular, and is also a film buff. Um, so we thought that we would have Joe join us for the legend of the blue sea part two conversation which um he did tell us before the podcast we began recording that he hate watched most of it um so we'll get into that but i thought that we could sort of open this by one having you talk about yourself a little bit and like what you look for when you're watching k-drama or films and so forth um, but also something that you mentioned to me that's really stayed with me that we've been talking about in the last like batch of episodes is that during the Park Bin-hye regime, you saw like an avalanche of uh, films about the colonial era being made um, and that you thought that this was a way for filmmakers and different artists to talk about the present by dipping into the past. So yeah, welcome, Joe. Thank you. So, as you said, I've been a journalist in Korea for several years and uh, mostly covered, um, have covered North and South Korea. And I really got into films because of you, uh, because you first recommended that I watch certain movies. And that's the reason that I got into a lot of what is now my favorite movies. Um, and since then, um, especially when I was living in the U.S., I was trying to learn Korean because I couldn't speak it well when I lived in the States. But uh, one way to really get better at speaking Korean was by watching Korean dramas. So I started watching them then, and then I kind of stopped watching them for a while. And then it wasn't until recently that I started re-watching some older stuff. Um, so now I'm finally back into really watching Korean dramas and trying to really understand how writers and uh, Korean artists are trying to express themselves in the current times. Yeah. Um, so why did you hate Legends? <laughs> I mean, this is like the top question because yeah. we were shocked to be we're quite shocked. honest. What about it? What about it? Did you hate? Did you hate the the fact that there was a mermaid or like what? Do you what, hate women, Joe? Do you, like, <laughs> <laughs> you Just conf- kidding. <laughs> you want to confess some things, Joe? What? What? What did you hate? Actually, to be honest, I really hated it in the beginning because I thought the production quality was quite poor. I thought the transition between the past life and the current life wasn't really well maneuvered and it seemed 
too unrealistic and almost like they didn't pay enough attention to certain details that you would have seen in a historic drama or you would have seen in a modern drama. And it seemed that they were just making compromises everywhere to try to tell this story. So it was really hard to watch in the beginning because it felt like these people were cutting corners to try to tell this story in a proper way. And that's why it was like really difficult because it felt at times very cheesy when I would see certain aspects of them going back and forth in the timeline and feeling like they could have done a better job. And even sometimes the acting, I felt like, um, I feel like Chun Jian always does a really good job in portraying the character that she typically portrays. But I feel like even the main protagonist, male protagonist, he sometimes fell short of, and maybe it was because also his character sometimes seemed flat, that he could have been a little bit more animated or figured out a different angle to try to portray the character. And so every episode I would watch, it would be like, oh, oh, wish I wish they could have done more. That's how I felt. But as time went on, and because you told me to watch this drama, <laughs> I did really feel like there was good social commentary in this drama that I can firmly say now that I would recommend other people to watch it. Such as what? What, what kind of social commentary? Well, to piggyback off of what you guys had already said, I really did feel that um, it talked about the narrative of uh, what the experience is like for an uh, immigrant or a person that's not of a certain country to go somewhere and try to really find out about that new world or about that new country. But I actually... I wanted to expand on that and not just talk about it as an immigrant experience, but I think it also talks about socialization in general. I particularly thought one of the most powerful moments about the drama is when Chun Jian, the female protagonist, starts to really have these inner conversations with herself and the male protagonist, Yiminu, really starts to hear that and he goes crazy hearing these conversations. But I really do feel that this is a buildup, especially if you hear gendered expression or talk, like they always say, oh, women are crazy or uh, women are mental, having like all these thoughts in their head. But I really think that this drama, what it's trying to portray is the socialization women or the non-dominant group has to learn in a world that is dominated by that said group. So in this case, they do a good exam example, <clears throat> excuse me, of Chun Jian, the mermaid, who has to socialize and understand how to become a human or act like a human. At first, you see that she's shy, she can't talk, and even basic mannerisms, as you guys mentioned, like eating, she eats with her hands, she doesn't wipe her mouth, she has to learn all these basic socialization skills, but it makes it so that she can't be true to herself and she can't have inner expression and has to learn how to lie and learn how to really uh, be what people think is normal instead of being herself. And it makes it so that these women 
in this drama have to create a false self of themselves and become people pleasers in order for them to please the male hierarchy and dominant male structures within the drama. And you also clearly see this in the young girl that the mermaid befriends. She says, like, my mom is never there and she thinks that I'm a bad girl unless I go to the after-school tutoring sessions. So already at that young of an age, they show these two people, one's an adult who comes to a foreign land and another one is a young child who's really impressionable and they have to learn the socialization of this male hierarchical structure and world. And basically what the world is telling them is that your value and your commodity is for you to be valued in the objectification of male desire and you only speak when males want to hear you speak. Otherwise, when you have these internal dialogues, you become crazy and people don't want to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, yeah. Go. Sorry. No, no, go, go, go. Um, I think like, that was great, Joe. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I think though that linking maybe two things that uh, you brought up, which I think is an interesting parallel maybe. Um, You started out talking a bit about um, almost like historical accuracy or like uh, a way that a narrative kind of gets told too that um, and how things have to unfold or should unfold in order for um, laying out a certain kind of storyline and that maybe in this one, the historical storyline is like either rushed or it like doesn't feel quite as full in a way or is like, you know, it misses out particular details. Um, I think that there's something interesting there about, um, it made me think about like the certain rules that kind of need to be broken maybe for fantasy narratives in a way. And that I think connected to what you were saying about um, like women's interiority or like gendered interiority and like the way that that kind of what is like interpreted as uh, like craziness or like circuitous thought or like something that doesn't feel like, like it's manic or like, you know, but it's actually like, it's not um, laid out actually in a very clear way. And that doesn't actually mean that it is one that doesn't make quote unquote sense. It's actually just one that doesn't have sense within heteronormative and patriarchal kinds of systems, right? Where it's like, that is not the thing that is like the dominant way of understanding. That's not the dominant knowledge. Um, And so I think there's like an, actually an interesting parallel there about the idea of like telling a historical story that doesn't follow some of those rules too. um, And how that could parallel to like the way that her thought process uh, or gender thought process doesn't follow those rules. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's not much more to add, Joe, in terms of just, I think that so much of maybe this drama is about somebody slowly being socialized into a certain kind of gender formation and how, like, does this thing called love and partnership accelerate the process? Or does it actually, is there a version of partnership that allows for a different kind of socialization is I guess like a question that we can ask, especially with the way that it ends. But, you know, with that being said, 
you didn't watch the last two episodes <laughs> for various Actually, reasons. I would say there's a lot of episodes. I think it goes to 20 episodes. It was like the last five episodes. Yeah. So you didn't watch like to the end, which, you know, you can tell us about like your context and your situation. But um, I thought that I would mention to our listeners, because I've mentioned to Kim before, that um, my brother is the reason that I started watching Something in the Rain. You know, and he told me to watch it. And I think, like, when we asked Joe, like, what do you want? Like, he did tell me, like, this is a drama that he really enjoyed. But then, like, when he told me about it, he basically was like, oh, yeah, it's like, there's no, it's not a happy ending. It's like, you know, it's it's a very, like, grim ending. And so I was really prepared for this, like, grim ending. And then I realized that maybe my brother had just watched the second to last episode and then just decided that was the last episode and then told me that that's why it was like a grim ending and then I told him like I asked him if he like did this on purpose like did he trick me and he genuinely just didn't watch the last episode so I you know like this just kind of continues like you don't watch things to the end. Do you not? Are you just not interested in the resolution? Is it kind of like this is your build your own adventure, like drama watching? I mean, because you have to do whatever you want. I mean, there's no no one is saying you have to watch to the end, but you're definitely not watching to the end. So what do you want, Joe? Okay, just because I didn't watch that drama to the end doesn't mean that I always don't watch it. Are you going to watch this one to the end? I think I might. I'm not going to give you a firm answer on that. His responsibilities are done after this episode. Exactly. Exactly. That is a fair point. That is a fair point. But in my defense, I really didn't know that something in the rain had another episode until you told me. (laughs) So actually, I really thought it was like such a beautiful drama because as you said, Normally, Korean movies, they're very grim and they're very realistic when they talk about, um, when they have social commentaries or social critiques. And Something in the Rain was such a deviation of what Korean dramas have been for such a long time. It actually outwardly criticized work culture and the gendered labor that has to go into work culture. And... This, like, even though people have hinted it here and there in other dramas, especially for public broadcasters, they never did it explicitly like they did for Something in the Rain, which was through a cable network television. So because of that, when it end, when I thought it ended on the second to last episode, I was like, this is really beautiful because it's telling us that there's like a lot more work we need to do Otherwise, it's just going to always be this way, is how I interpreted it. And then you told me, no, it's a happy ending. There's one more episode. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to watch that last episode because it defeats the purpose of this drama. I mean, I guess it's a question of what we seek in our entertainment in this way. Um, You know, like I think that the idea that you also watch something – that doesn't have resolution because it feels closer to uh, who we are and how we live and what the reality is of these things, which I think is definitely applicable for something in the rain because so much of it just like feels so real, you know, like 
Whereas like shows like these, of course, like Legend of the Blue Sea or like uh, the Time Traveler show or whatever it was that we watched, which had, you know, fantastical elements. There's always serial killers. There's a lot of stuff going on. Something in the Rain has like, it's, it's just like very like, this is, this is all of our lives. This is someone, you know, this is like, there's some, there's a familiarity about it that um, I think that having it not end in resolution would make perfect sense as well um, for it. But I don't know. I mean, I also feel as though that our world is such trash that I'm like, please, somebody give me a win somewhere. (laughs) But I actually do think this ties back into what you were talking about in the analysis that I gave about how dramas since 2016, although there's been a lot of dramas for a long time, there has been a lot of dramas since 2016 up till now that have really done this time travel trope. And it wasn't a time travel trope of colonial era. It was a time travel trope of modern times where they would go back to the 80s or the 90s and try to fix what is wrong with their situation now. And yes, it could have been a critique on uh, a certain administration or a certain government that was oppressive, but it really, really felt like they were critiquing just a neoliberal capitalist state where they've realized that there's so much that was lost in trying to develop that they forgot to build a foundation that was healthy to begin with, that they had to go back and try to rebuild that foundation or find out what was lost. So you guys kind of talked about it within this drama as well, where he's trying to make up for the things that he did wrong in the past and rewrite history at the present moment. But this has been like a reoccurring theme, especially like time traveling, just within the last five years where everybody's going back just 20 years and everybody feeling like there's something wrong with our current situation. Yeah, no, I definitely think that the desire to transform the present and the kind of entrapment of the present, how, and I say entrapment, like it just feels like, where do you go in this space is so strong that that's like what Kim and I have been talking about the last few episodes is that like it really does seem like the narratives are like really pushing for some kind of rupture some kind of rupture like some possibility of rupture and uh like whether it's like you go into the past or you go into the future it's just it's about like the kinds of the cloak the enclosure the enclosure or like the entrapment of the present I think And I think that like that does describe our current political global moment as well. Like what you're saying with like neoliberal capitalism, how like it really does seem like all the ends are cut off, right? Like it's like, it's like you, you know, you, you desire this job, but it's like the job is like a job of precarity, you know, like every, everything, everyone says like, it's like scarce and limited and all of the things are just like, everything comes with these limitations and so there's something about the present that I think feels so um, ongoing but precarious at the same time that I do think this sort of like the time traveling, the reincarnation makes a lot of sense to me 
as a fantasy. I actually do think this drama is also interesting as well because it is reliant on changing the present, but there's also a gendered um, conversation that can be had within that space. And I think it, it sometimes comes out in a lot of different dramas or movies as well. But if we look at how character development has happened, really who can change the present or who was responsible for protecting, um, I guess, safety and security even in the past was on men. And it does really feel like they're showing that whoever has privilege has ample opportunity to relive or change their present versus people who aren't in positions of power cannot, which I think is kind of interesting because I don't even know if they were trying to make that critique, but it kind of feels like they're critiquing themselves by having that as a situation where the main character who can change the present is a man instead of the woman, the woman who probably could have changed all of this in a different way than the man who keeps making the mistake. (laughs) And it probably also goes to talk about our current situation where we talk about racial disparities and how it's very difficult for people of color, especially black, um, black uh, men and women, if they lose an opportunity or don't, don't seize their opportunity, whatever, the, whatever that means, then when is another opportunity going to come for, for them? Whereas if a man who's in a position of power, who's like Harvey Weinstein or a corporate white executive, he might have sexual harassment cases or be accused of rape and he'll still be a millionaire. So the amount of opportunities that he has to rewrite his fate constantly is so ample and he has so many opportunities, whereas everybody else is, it's not the same. Um, I was going to ask you, Joe, like, because you're the one who told me about uh, the character, the, like, she's like a supporting character in this show, Moon um, Sori, who's like, she employs like the mother the like the the mother who abandoned our protagonist um and she's she like plays this like rich friend essentially and i've seen her in films like um a good lawyer's wife it was like the english translation but the korean title was paramnan kajok which like a more um true translation would be like everyone in the family is having an affair or like everyone is everyone in the family's a cheater everyone's cheating or something right like but I just like remember her as sort of being this kind of badass activist and that film was for me like one of I think like Kim and I have talked a lot about how so much of k-drama tends to be like Christian and its approach to sexuality like everyone's really like hungry for a hand holding or like a hug like a long hug but you know korean films aren't necessarily this way and that film in particular was really centered around her like sexual pleasure and like in this like very different kind of way that i found to be like so interesting but i also know like you have other things to say about this actress so do you want to take us through 
Yeah. yeah, so this drama was made in 2016. Um, but then the following year, well, it came out in 2016. It ended in 2017. But in 2017, uh, her husband made this film called 1987. And it's about the June 10th protests where student activists basically call for the end of a military dictatorship under Chen Duan. She also is casted, but she doesn't have a major role in that film. But as you said, she has been very active for a long time and very vocal, uh, not only about Pakana's administration, but also other uh, political issues. And so after this was, you can see this as basically her last uh, drama that she was in for at least two years. Because once this came out, and then 1987 came out, she and her husband both were blacklisted. And in the blacklist, there was a lot of different actors uh, included, as well as directors, including Hong jun who recently won the Academy Award, as well as Park Chan-wook and all these other like famous act, uh, directors and actors. But it's interesting because within 1987, which also uh, casts... Um, the sidekick of the main protagonist, male protagonist. He's also in that movie as a journalist. But um, some actors within that movie still were able to shoot dramas and shoot movies, but that couple seemingly was really blacklisted out of the entertainment industry. And they recently came out last year talking about why they haven't been out in the public for so long. So it just goes to show you that, like, in this drama, she might have been somebody of a higher class, but she still has been actively trying to take down or critique um, uh, authority that is oppressive. Can you talk? Can you explain what the blacklist was? Because like I wanted to be clear that it wasn't just like some random list; it was like a government-generated list. Yeah. The uh, Ministry of Culture had this list um, that basically had a list of artists any from any field that the government uh, under the ousted president, Park Geun-hye, they felt like was cr- critical of her father, her, or any other um, figure that they felt was important to their leadership. And this made it so that public as well as private shouldn't give them any money or funding for any projects that they have. So it really did make it so that they couldn't do any work. So there's a lot of actresses since that blacklist happened that have come out during this administration who've talked about how they felt like their careers were basically taken away from them and that it's hard for them to get back on their feet. Because really, like, where do you see this actress now? Like, other than the show that I mentioned where she interviewed, she hasn't really been active in the scene. And that could be for personal reasons. But I do also suspect that it's partly due to the fact that a lot of people weren't able to work with her and it created a tension within their relationships as well. <laughs> I'm just like, 
I mean, it is so depressing, you know, to think about how um, you can be someone that has also um, constructed their career in such a way, has established, you know, such a reputation, have um, appeared in television, in film, um, and how dependent on particular regimes and administrations um, that is so easily taken away through the withdrawal of capital and support, you know, like that it's not even just like, it's not even just about the visibility, but it's like, we're not going to fund any of the films that you're in. We will destroy your relationships, um, which so much of um, film as well as, you know, many industries are constructed on these like networks too. Right. And it's, it's just like incredibly sad, I think, to think about that and, and to parallel that with like the kind of character that she plays in this television show, which is incredibly, um, she's like a very incredibly rapid, you know, kind of wealthy woman who uh, employs the lead male protagonist's um, mother, doesn't realize that that's um, the first wife of a very wealthy CEO. Um, and the the majority of her screen time is um like i think at the beginning where she treats the mother really quite terribly um but is mostly interested in uh investments you know and how she can use you know we actually were talking a bit about maybe how the show um is the most that we've encountered that leans towards a co-op but i just realized that maybe this woman and her philanthropic interests um are maybe one that we forgot in that equation <laughs> but like yeah i think that she's like supposed to be the characters that are like least interesting right like like yes. that's why she's like supporting you know like and we say like most leaning towards a co-op like no one is a ceo who who gifts their employees to have lunch with them or something you know yes so, they're all orphans they all share a home Nobody owns property, <laughs> um, and they all refuse. They well, I mean, not all of them. Actually, that's a lie. But uh, several of them refuse the potential for wealth. Yeah. Um, and with that being said, Joe, like, what do you? What were some of the concerns that were raised for you throughout? Like, other than like the so much social commentary that you raised, like, what were some of the things that you wanted to talk to us about about this series? Because you know what we've covered in part one well just one off the top of my head how did the evil stepmother spy with a flip phone that's what I <laughs> like how is that possible so your yeah. your main Those... contribution to the analysis of the k-drama is that there's some technical inaccuracies like that's what you but you would have a flip phone, though, because you need to have a burner phone if you're doing shady shit. That's what you're supposed to use. Well, does a flip phone have the technological advancements oh to really buy on Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> my God. I cannot believe this. <laughs> but I did want to actually add a bit um, to what you guys talked about. I really felt that the driving point that you guys really talked about previously is about the change in the present, but how it's because the current situation is so violent that they have to feel that they have to change the system. And 
I, I felt that it was also interesting that you guys made the comparison that he was a public servant or public official in his past life, and then now he became a con artist um, to redistribute wealth. Uh, but I actually thought that rather than radical, that actually said a lot about um, the current state that we're living in of state violence that we currently participate in. Mm. Because the reason that he became a con artist and the reason he joined hands with his partners in the current situation was to find his mother. But it's because this system failed him that he couldn't find his mother after they were separated, that he had to go outside the system in what he calls redistributing wealth in order to find her. And I think that's really important for the entire drama because it goes to show and tell us that the system, whether it is home ownership or land ownership or the need for co-op spaces or other amenities that they really talk about in terms of wealth, that our current system doesn't actually benefit or help the people that actually need it. Joe, you haven't watched the later episodes, but we'll give you a spoiler alert because I know you're not going to watch them. <laughs> but what do you, what would you make of the fact that um, he then just becomes a civil servant again at the end? Well, that was foreshadowed, right? Because he was already reading the book and this is kind of what the mermaid continuously hinted like, oh, you're a civil servant, that's such a reputable job. And he did a better job than the cops and people kept asking him, are you a detective, are you a prosecutor? So I, I, I do feel they left a bunch of crumbs to let us know that eventually this will be his evolution. But I think that actually is probably the reason why I don't finish dramas in the <laughs> Do we believe that the mermaid is a reformist? Is that oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, essentially. Because it, it, it does hint that she's a reformist, even when they talk about their systems of redistributing wealth. She says lying is bad, and she says don't do bad things, that's still cheating other people. And that is such... A uh, typical capitalist answer where wealth belongs to somebody. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And this system creates an equal space for everybody. And that's clearly not the situation throughout the entire drama. Yeah. I mean, we, you know. We don't know anything about the sea, <laughs> but, but I don't want to believe that, or I don't actually believe that the sea is devoid of some of these <laughs> systems, you know? Um, and I think that that's actually a really interesting argument for why she probably is more of a reformist, as opposed to like the kind of potential argument that, well, her ecosystem is completely, um, you know, she still believes in it because she hasn't been tainted, whatever, by... Um... Or it could also just go back to socialization. Mm -hmm. That 
women become enforcers of state violence because it's their only way to survive. Like even in the beginning episodes, she carries around a shell of a clown in order to pretend like it's a purse. Like it just shows you how violent socialization is, how violent state violence is, that they feel they have to do whatever they can to try to fit in. And you see this all the time uh, within either female conservatives or female politicians where they become even more reformists or enforcers of state violence to try to continue this uh, system which they feel might have rescued them or saved them when it really was their only way to survive. I mean, but then, like, let's bring up the fact that, like, Okay, so something we wanted to continue talking about was like rejection and abandonment and how rejection and abandonment really structured this particular narrative. And so like the mermaid is, I would not disagree. She's a reformist, but she's also like the most motherless character that I think we've met in a really long time. I mean, Kim said it really well. She's basically like legacies for losers. You know, like she's just like, I don't even like... It's not even like this whole like heritage, like there's reincarnation, but like it's really unclear what the ecosystem that she belongs to looks like and like whatever version of trauma that might have existed there for her to completely just be siloed. And then we have him who like essentially decides to disinherit everything that he's connected to. So we have two figures, like one where we actively see his own rejection and his and the the, the abandonment he um, faced, but that also she's just like this like almost like singular figure. What do we make of that? Well, don't you kind of feel that it reinforces neoliberal structures? That's how I really saw into that because there is this constant um, repetition about memories, about uh, past lives, and like how nostalgia really makes or somebody's past really makes them more humanly or better. And I I do feel that this is something you actually see very often in Korean dramas about nostalgia. And normally they use nostalgia as a way to further, um, to further infiltrate people to believing in structures of neoliberalism where it creates this sentiment for the character that you're watching or a relationship that you have with the character to be able to relate and be like oh yeah my past was this good or my memories have made me what i am today uh even if in the current moments it's absolute in shambles but and Go ahead. No, I'm trying to understand how is re- how is the nostalgia being further invoked by the mermaid's like motherlessness or familylessness? Because like, is it like what is she nostalgic for? Because we never but, see the scenes. But she's nostalgic for nostalgia, is what I'm saying. Because she does everything she can to try to act human. Like, even though the male protagonist knows that 
she's a mermaid. She does everything she can to try to hide that she's a mermaid. Yeah, and there is that thing, I guess, about going back to socialization again, you know, about the construction of desires and the construction of um, what that nostalgia is. Like, to, to come from a place where, uh, you know, where the, she encounters, like, this man on the street who, like, tries to sell her something and or, like, swindle her because and mention something about her ancestors. And she's like, what are ancestors? And she doesn't even know there's supposed to be something that she's supposed to honor or, like... And then it's almost, like, through this kind of socialization or this expectation, she like starts to take on some of this baggage in a way too, where, you know, she talks, like she asks people about like, she asks like, actually a lot of her conversations with the little girl are kind of around this too, where it's like, well, what's the deal with money? And why do you want a job? If you have a job and you're just like working all the time, when do you live happily? I don't understand. <laughs> and like, it's like, tell me about marriage. Like what's marriage? Or like, well, why do you get to, if you got divorced, why do you get married? And just like she asked these like very innocent questions, but I actually think that they're kind of about like, oh, it's like a, a start that start of like a socialization in which she's like, well, I want to be married then. Like, oh, OK. You know, where it's like she didn't necessarily think that was a thing in a way. Um, yeah. I, I think. Sorry. Oh, uh, I actually do think that part is so interesting because she actually makes social structures absurd by asking those questions like that scene when she's in the hospital room with a bunch of people and she said oh i'm married to all of you like <laughs> the, as you said the heteronormative definitions we have for everybody are actually absurd but then at the end of the drama by the end of the drama she wants these things even though they're absurd okay so then you guys does love or this thing called partnership I, <laughs> I mean i asked it before so i'm just saying like let's talk about it like does this thing called partnership and whatever this thing called love is does it reinforce the violence of socialization or does it have some potential for an ethical reorientation of like the various positions we take because you're basically saying not only is she socialized to perform femininity and to perform a certain kind of gender but she's also like socialized into normativity like and the socialization it's not just about the performance of understanding the definitions she begins to desire it i mean because that's the shit that i think that all that haunts us all is that like that it fucks with your desires. So are we saying that like then love and partnerships facilitate this or Joe, you didn't watch to the end, but like, are we saying like it perhaps is able to do something else? Sorry, you can edit this out. I just love that. You just keep emphasizing that I didn't watch to the end. Not editing <laughs> that out. Like every, every question you throw out, you and Kim have both, even though you're not going to watch it to the end. <laughs> okay. Well, it's because, like... Look, it's a pattern, okay? It's a pattern of behavior, Joe. We're just trying to identify it and hold you accountable. <laughs> well, I'm only for one. It's because the end... The, the, the thing that about the end that we talk about in part one is that it brings up how, like he finds a space 
near the coast where she doesn't have to be just human anymore, that she's able to exist in both realms. And he's only able to do this because he's so actively all of his life slowly separated from his own social structures and his own family formations. It's not like there was some ultimatum and he was ripped from like his family of origins. Like he himself decides to take himself out of that lineage and they, they both exist on the coast. So I'm saying like, I, because I guess, I guess it's like just so depressing <laughs> just to say like this whole thing is just about like you just desire it too and like that's what partnership is i'm like asking is there some other way to read it or are we just saying like that's what it is i i do think what you're saying is like a very utopic and happy ending for sorts for this drama but if i look at the drama as a whole, how they've described how mermaids are. And you you see a male mermaid, but like basically the way that people view mermaids is usually as a female. But they say you can only fall in love once. And if that love doesn't come to fruition, then you're dead. So <laughs> it might be a living I, that's true that is actually the whole thing if i laughed living- because i was like it's basically the like it's basically the propaganda of heteronormativity like yeah. if this relationship doesn't work out you're dead like but it's also the purity that of you guys have talked about within christian like this christian idealized uh space that k-dramas always have where women have to be pure and have to dedicate themselves to like one man. And in this case, they've embodied it as a mermaid. So yes, it might be utopic in that it's a co-op space and they can both live. But my question is, why doesn't he just get a giant ass air tank and live under the ocean with it? <sighs> really pushing utopia there, you know? <laughs> you're, you're, basically, you're saying a submarine is the real utopia like because if you think about how they've described love right Iminu says love is you're surrendering to the other person and this actually is true the mermaid literally potentially surrenders her life and takes the gamble even though she finds out from the other mermaid that her life is at risk. She goes on land, stays on land, keeps asking him, what's your plan? Are you gonna love me like I love you? And she waits. But how much of that waiting and suffering has he done? And it's almost zero. He has no labor on his part. And we give him credit for saying, you picked a property on the beach. As if that Damn. is sacred. Damn, Joe. <laughs> Sweet shade. That was great. <laughs> However, I would say you could also, though, you should you should punt it to the mermaid as also her choice that maybe she wants to live part time on land and part time in water and not exclusively in water because, you know. But you could also then 
twist around and make the argument that socialization has made her believe that being human is great or something because it's not. But this is interesting. So are you saying, Joe, that you believe that for all of his emotional intelligence, which I would like to know if you think, we would like to know if you think that he's an emotionally intelligent character, for, you know, his emotional intelligence, he is not performing the emotional labor that she is performing, that she performs, she outperforms his emotional labor by far. That's what you're saying. If you remember that movie, Mel in Mel Gibson starred in What a Woman Wants, and he's oh, able to God. the <laughs> mind of women, and then he gets complimented for that because he's able to do a little bit better than what other men are doing. That's essentially the male protagonist. He literally has a gateway into her inner desires, and that's all he can do. It's pretty pathetic. (laughs) My God, he was our new gold standard. You're trashing our new gold standard, Joe. (laughs) If you have that much access to intimate thought, and you know exactly what she wants, why would that be the only emotional labor and physical labor that you do. She literally swam across the world. Yeah. How come nobody is talking about this? Yeah. She three literally months. three months above the ocean near Spain to Korea. And she says this, I swam across the ocean to see you. Yeah. It's nuts. She was very, I mean, she's not wrong. <laughs> like, it's really like, crazy. She made the choice. Yeah. But this would be the equivalent of an actual human walking across three continents. And that's fucking nuts. <laughs> so you're saying that that love was not worth it, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's worth it for them. I don't know. That's not for them. But I just think he needs to get his shape. He needs to check himself, basically. So you don't like, do think... better. He can read her mind. Do better. So <laughs> so for you, on a scale of like emotionally intelligent non women characters, he does not rank that high for you? He was a flat character for me. Hmm. Very interesting. How would you rank him in comparison to uh, the lead male protagonist in Something in the Rain. The lead male protagonist in Something in the Rain was also flat. Like, they both didn't have much evolution for me. They just both stayed male. It's such a male move to be like, hey, I'm going to get a property on the beach. That's for you. You're welcome. Looking for, like, complete gender evolution. <laughs> He's still a male. <laughs> You're like, how much work did he do? He stayed a dude. Like, what do you want? Like, he didn't become mermaid. <laughs> if you can't grow fucking fins, get an oxygen tank. That's all I'm <laughs> Are there examples, not necessarily in the shows that we have uh, discussed on this podcast, that you believe are better examples of? emotional competency within a man, despite the fact that they're men. (laughs) Yep. I just definitively think that normally when any entertainment medium, whether it's dramas or movies, 
if they do heteronormative male characters, the male character is usually flat. Whereas if it's like a queer love, then the male characters are actually very dynamic. And it's really weird and maybe just telling of heteronormative cis males that we just really suck as human beings and we get our shape together like, shape up, buddy. You can read her mind. But okay, but are you frustrated by this? Like, do you think that it would be helpful or... I mean, I say this and I cringe because I'm like, I do think that like white men receive this kind of like robust representational like scope. Like here's a white male serial killer. Here's the white man teacher turned drug lord. Serial killer. (laughs) Serial killer. Here's like, here's like the gradations of like white men and they're like, I mean, I don't know. Should we call it interiority? But like, would you would you want to see like maybe non-white like in korean dramas in particular i do think that korean dramas try really hard you know like mizang is like one example which i kim i think i told you about this before it's like about like a subcontracted employee but i do think like the the dramas are are get really close to issues that actually fucking matter you know like what is precarity and what is employment and so i guess when i see flat men represented i actually didn't even think this guy was a flat dude this is how low my bar is he seemed relatively okay actually he seemed he was interested he was interested enough in the relationship that he was willing to think about his past selves which I guess for me, in terms of my entertainment, is so much more above and beyond what I'm used to any kind of, like, dude kind of, like, that kind of emotional labor is just so rare, like, that I was pretty impressed by that. But I'm also, like, I'm in agreement that I think, like, it's still very bare bones. Like, he didn't swim from Spain to Korea. You're right. I mean very bare bones but also like you know yeah like what kinds of i mean because kim and i are like actively looking for shows that think about interiority and women so it's like well then what are you watching because it's like what do you want to watch like i would be so frustrated if these dramas didn't exist like this is why we don't watch like most tv in the u.s right like so, yeah. If I did argue, I wouldn't say that the characters you mentioned when they're usually male, white male characters, that it's showing an interiority by them being a school teacher to becoming a drug lord. I think it's them realizing the power and privilege they actually have and putting that into motion. I think realizing your privilege is not dynamic. I think that is really just oppressive. I think that male cis characters need to show some type of evolution, like revolutionary stance where they're not just doing bare bones and actually showing that we add value in this world instead of being like, we give you this little thing 
and make it seem like it's the world. And yes, I would love to see non-white male characters do that, but I think in general, unless it's queer love, it's very difficult for a lot of storytellers to tell dynamic dynamic character development for male characters. It's weird because I don't want to push for like more men to write because I'm like, I don't want to, don't. But then I'm also kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Kim, do you Why, where are you going with that? I know. I was like, I don't I'm know like, what I'm saying. I don't feel like more men have led us to this. Exactly. So what, been, what I'm saying is, like, I guess there's just been a lot of dudes around, but, like, the interiority has not been explored, which we don't know what, we don't know what to do with that. I think these are also... Uh, maybe complementary, but also different emotional journeys. You know, mm. I think that we uh, have probably managed our expectations to a certain degree in which we're also think very little of some of these male characters, expect very little. The fact that they even acknowledge mistakes, we're like, congratulations, we're great. Like, <laughs> we're like, but, wait, you think you did one thing wrong? Amazing. Gold star. Gold standard. Like, every, just yeah. how low our bar is, you know? Um, but I, I mean, I agree. I think that, at, you know, it's unspoken, but I think we all want more. We all desire more. We all want that to not be the case, but working within the universe that we currently work within. Um, I think very often we, we just like don't see expressions of emotion that are not related to expressions of violence. And we don't see expressions of, um, like love that don't feel abusive. And I think that it's, I don't know. There's something, I think when we, we watched this drama that it was like, it, I think it has, it is, it is laden with a lot of feelings just in general. It's a very like emotional drama in ways. It's not, it's not like a melodrama that's like, that's the only thing that's happening. But it, it, I think one of the things that you get sucked into is the fact that it's like, guy goes to therapy he's like really into hypnosis <laughs> like he's spending a lot of time thinking about his past he is mostly just like thinking about his feelings a lot actually um which isn't necessarily i think um something that we see all the time in male representations and it's not to say that those feelings are overly complex it's not to say that those feelings are transformative all the time or that they are ones that I think um, are like bringing something new to us. I think we're just like, you have feelings. You acknowledge mistakes. Wow, <laughs> we'll take it. We can work with this, I guess. Does that make you feel, Joe? <laughs> no, I agree that you don't really see male characters performing that type of labor. But the only thing that I question is, was he exploring his feelings to actually be a better partner? Because even though the entire premise or the warning that his past self gives to his present self is to protect the woman, I don't necessarily know if he was actually doing it for her or he was doing it for himself. And that's the thing that kind of bothered me about this character 
is he seems so impressed with himself that at times it actually felt like they could have focused more on the woman. Like a lot more because I do feel that at times you felt that the woman was flat because obviously she was an empty vessel and learning the things that she needed to learn to survive in this world. But if you just think about dialogue, how much dialogue she had versus like random like sounds and movements or just her interior thoughts, if you don't include that and you just include dialogue, it's just like I'm hungry I want to eat this. Like, do you like me? I would have rather than him exploring his memories and his past through therapy, actually ask questions like, where in the entire ocean did you come from? Because we still don't even know that. Yeah, she doesn't have ancestry. But why was she in Spain? We don't know. Why are they staying in Korea? Obviously for him, like none of these actual important points about the woman character are ever resolved because the story is solely surrounded on this guy needing to resolve his problems and psychological nostalgic past life memories. And it just goes back to this thing that women have to sacrifice themselves for their love Or in another way, when men have to really find out what their dreams is or figure out their goals in life, that the women have to support them. And that's such heteronormative violence. (laughs) Just like depressed. So we have no gold standards. They're all garbage. Yeah. On that note, we should wrap up fairly soon. But before we... Yeah. So... This is, you guys might have done more, but this is the third drama you guys have reviewed by uh, the screenwriter Pak Jie. She wrote this drama um, from another star, which you really liked, which also had Chun Ji on. And she also wrote Crash Landing on You. And there are similar themes throughout all three of those dramas. Why do you feel that you are either drawn to them or you like them? that you guys continue to review her dramas? I mean, I do think that there is, I think in all of these shows, um, it's, it is because of the, the female characters, I think. Um, even though they are, I mean, I don't think we seek out a kind of perfection in these characters necessarily, but I do think that um, they do have interiority and that there is um, occasional kinds of messiness that's associated um, with their lead female characters. I think if you also look at just like the collection of those three shows alone, he's probably, the legend dude is probably the best dude out of all of those dudes in terms of communication and emotional availability um you know the dude in crash barely says things really he just mostly just stands he there. just looks good he just looks good which you know has purpose I mean, i'm not gonna lie that has purpose but there's not a lot of dialogue there for sure and and of course our alien is 
unbelievably emotionally unavailable. It's like crazy. Um, and so I think maybe within, even within that context, you're just like, oh, okay, well, here's something where here's someone that's actually more of a open character. But I actually think that we fall into this, um, maybe it's a larger question too, where we, we kind of track the woman, you know, we track the female character, the lead character. And, and I think in the case of, um, tomorrow, it was like, that's how we entered into it and then realized she was not the most interesting character. And it was almost like we got duped <laughs> into watching the rest of the series. But I think that's why we end up, uh, why we've like reviewed so many by this person. I think it's because this, those female characters seem to have a little bit more complexity to them that we're sort of interested in, in some capacity. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also say that, I mean, base, I think that there's enough social commentary and social setup like the worlds it, even though they're like placed in the realm of like the fantastical i mean like so there's an alien there's a mermaid and then there's a sort of like romeo juliet slash snow white border crossing kind of element i think like there even within that the societal structures and societal forms of exploitation are set up enough that even like because i'm not going to say like the writer is interested in like um marxist feminism and i don't say this as like a like a like a western like form of like belittling i'm just saying like because i do think like a drama that i hope maybe we could eventually talk about like um you know all about bali which was one that came out in the late 90s like actually like the writer i think she was interested in marxist feminism like they kept citing Gramsci, like everyone was like talking about Gramsci, you know, like during their dates and stuff. So I think that there is enough happening in the K-drama world that I think they know things and I think that they're reading things and they're doing kind of a cross analysis. But that doesn't mean that I think that this drama is a reflection of her political desires. I The worlds are built up enough that like our critiques and our like what we're interested in sort of um, figuring out can be explored. And that setup does exist. It's more um, fully formed. Like, I don't think Kim and I are ever going to watch like one of those blockbusters that have anything to do with like the military, you know, or nurses. Like, (laughs) this was a blockbuster. This was number one. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, the blockbusters that have, like, Song Ye-kyo and stuff like that, which, like, I like her as an actress, but, you know, like, the the whole, like, nurse military love plot, like, no thanks, you know? I also would say, like, I'm less interested in, Kim, tell me what you think, like, I'm less interested in, like, the love story, actually, always, and I'm always more interested in, like, I'm interested. Class warfare. Yeah. Pardon? Class warfare. I'm interested in class warfare, but I'm also interested in like the reason we thought he was emotionally intelligent was not because of the way that he even interacted with her, which I think you're right to point out. I think we're just like interested in like character development and class warfare, you know, more than anything else. Um, The love is almost always lackluster. Like, I don't even really understand. I think because it's so situated within very typical heteronormative structures, it's yeah. also like it's the least interesting. I think I think though that we are very interested in questions of partnership and ethical partnership and 
how we as individuals also um, work towards being partners and what what partnership looks like, what relationship looks like. Um, so maybe we also maybe dissect it too too finely, and we don't actually look at it as a re- like an actual relationship in that way. Yeah. Okay. Before we go, la- well, one, do you have last things and last comments for us? But secondly, um, fashion review. I know that there's like at least a few things. Yes. People look really good on the show. High budge. The clothes are very fancy. Um, I thought we could talk about how 2016 and 2017, we were really into pajama dressing. <laughs> it, she like has a lot of stylish pajamas that she wears, a lot of silk pajama pants. She wears them out in the world. It's not, they actually like, wear their regular clothes in bed a lot, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> They're just like, I'm so tired. I'm just going to sleep in my jacket. <laughs> um, but they wear a lot of prints. She has like a lot of like print matching that happens. Uh, there's like one scene where I think she like goes to the, the bin to like get all those like designer clothes. And she, you know, we're supposed to believe that she kind of put together this crazy outfit just cause she like randomly selected these things. But that outfit is actually like, right from the runway of Miu Miu. Like, it's like the whole thing, like the crazy belt, the crazy jacket, like the whole thing. Um, and that that's also why the the kind of wealthy, the wealthy rich friend kind of person um, is like so impressed with her too. She was like, what is this look? Nothing matches, but I'm also so drawn to it at the same time. Yeah, I thought Chun Jiyeon dressed amazing in this and the layering that she constantly did, the scene you're talking about, um, it was supposed to look like she put it together, but almost all of her outfits were very layered and put together. They had great shape pairing, color pairing. Whereas the male, I don't know who his stylist is, but he just looked like a wannabe Kanye with really pants. <laughs> and um, I, like, if I remember, there was only one outfit that I was really impressed with, with the male character, and that was when he was in Spain, uh, layering a trench, black trench jacket with a hoodie. But other than that, it was, like, very flat, flat colors, didn't look very good. I felt like they should have layered him as well. Uh, maybe got him a little bit baggier pants. He wears a lot of turtlenecks. It's, like, mostly, like, turtlenecks. And then a lot of very loose knits, a lot of cashmere sweaters. There's like a weird like lime green sweater that he wears. Um, That's like a lot of look. (laughs) But his shoes are definitely sponsorship because we see his feet a lot, like walking down steps and like, you know, hitting the gas pedal. And I was like, "Mm, this is product placement. I don't know what these shoes are, but they're definitely product placement. But like, I just feel like the female character, she looked really good with accessories, like she had great hats yeah. here and there. Um, she just had great compliments to her outfit. And he just, it was like, he could have went to any store and put that outfit together. It felt very, like they had no desire to make him look good. Do you think they spent the entire budget on her though? <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'm like, we're talking like Lux, you guys. Like, it's like, there's a lot, it's like a lot of Dolce & Gabbana, there's Chanel, there's Dior. Like, she's really, she's got it all. 
No, because like even when she mismatched the shoes, the yellow and blue shoes, since then, like especially sneakers, they come in mismatching colors. Like a lot of that has. I'm not saying that this drama changed it, but whoever thought of it was obviously keen on trends and understanding how things were moving in the fashion. Yeah. Um, okay. So what I learned is that um, we got to have Joe on here more, especially when we find a gold standard because Joe has The search thoughts. continues just like the co-op. Yeah. <laughs> The search continues on our gold standard and co-op and, um, you know, these male characters that we're really impressed by, Joe is not really impressed by. So hopefully you'll join us again in the very near future um, with a drama you like. With a drama you finished, Joe. <laughs> I'd love to be on again. Thanks for having me. Uh, I definitely finish all dramas except one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll finish this one as well, and I'll write you guys a long essay on what I thought about the end. <laughs> thank you, Joe. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.